Hello and welcome to Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Korenkov. I am just about done with my PhD at Stanford, where I studied robotics and computer vision, and I'm now working at one of these uh, Silicon Valley AI startups. And it does sound like you're having the, the real startup experience here. I am your other host, at least for this week, coming from another world. I usually host a Gradient podcast. My name's Daniel Bashir. I am not quite having the startup experience. I, I work on machine learning compilers at Amazon Web Services. So pretty, pretty different world from Andre. Welcome, Daniel. It'll be fun to have a guest host. We haven't done that in a bit. Uh, just to give a bit more background, uh, I started the Gradient podcast, I think maybe like two years ago. It's been ongoing for a while. And that one is all about interviewing various AI people, uh, so people in academia, industry, artists, just whatever. Uh, so it's really fun. We get to, now Daniel has taken over and is pretty much doing all the interviews. And every week you talk to someone who is really cool and interesting and get to learn from them. Uh, I don't know, Daniel, how many interviews mm -hmm. have you done already, do you think? Ooh, uh, at least, I feel like it's got to be at least 50 by now. I've got... Let me think. We have a little bit of a backlog, so we're, we're getting pretty close to episode 80. And I think I, I probably picked up around... So I did one of the early interviews with Evan Hoopinger. I think that was one of the first five or 10. And then I probably picked up around somewhere in the 20s, I want to say, as far as like fully taking over. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it is. it has been a while. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, uh, a little bit of a plug for that podcast here. We have had a lot of cool people. So, for instance, I got to interview Yann LeCun, which was really fun. Uh, Sergey Levine, the co-founder of Elefure AI, which was a really interesting one. So, yeah, we have all sorts of people. What are, what are some of the highlights uh, for you, Daniel, so far? Too many. Um, so I had Yashua Bengio on back at the end of last year. I think we just need we just need Hinton to complete the triad, really. <laughs> um, uh, I think uh, Chris Manning, too, was probably one of my favorite personal interviews. And then um, some really fantastic recent ones. One that was a little bit out of the way was with Ken Liu, who is a science fiction and fantasy author. Um, he has written some really wonderful stuff, but also was one of the writers involved in Google's WordCraft project, where they had a bunch of fiction authors basically collaborate with a tuned version of their Lambda model, the famous one that Blake LeMond thought was sentient. And so they actually had them sort of work together with it to write short stories and kind of got their feedback on, is this actually something useful to, to write and to create with. So he wrote this really cool story called Evaluative Soliloquies, which was like, I am kind of coming from the perspective of like, I'm a self-driving car and something bad happened, like we ended up in a crash. So what circumstances actually led to that happening? 
I should listen to that. I've not been listening to a podcast enough lately. Um, and by the way, the the podcast is a uh, branch of the Gradient in general. And there's an online magazine where people share articles about AI, perspectives, and editorials at thegradient.pub. We have a newsletter on Substack. Anyway, so it's a, it's a cool project. You should check it out. Uh, and we are done with the plugs. <laughs> let's let's get into it. FYI, you can always look in the description for the timestamps of each section. So if that was annoying to you, you can skip any like prologue next time. So let me give a quick overview of what we'll be covering this week. Uh, as usual, we'll have our tools and apps section where we'll be talking about a bunch of things with ChatGPT and some things from Apple and Google. We'll talk about uh, VCs and cost of generative AI in applications and business. In projects and open source, we'll talk about the EU AI Act and Stability AI. In research and advancements, we'll be covering uh, Google's Palm 2 and some research from Microsoft and stuff on prompts. Policy and safety, we'll be talking about worst case outcomes, uh, as we often do, warnings about potential futures in AI, and some statistics about uh, current day uh, developments. And then last up in AI-generated media and art, we'll be talking about why UCI is uh, contentious with writers and some more news about music generation so that's the overview. But real quick, before that, we do want to do our shout out to uh, listener comments and corrections. First up, we have uh, Seth Weiderberg, who emailed us and actually gave us a perspective about the people striking as a member of the Writers Guild. So really quite nice email that explained a lot of what's going on with that beyond what we understood uh, last week when we talked about it. So at the end of the podcast, we will uh, devote a bit of time to specifically talk about that topic and you know uh, inform a bit more about it. Then uh, beyond that, we got a nice uh, email from Edgar, uh, who gave a nice tip about this uh, topic of voice cloning and scams. So one tip that they shared and that in general uh, is becoming common is to agree on a basically safe word or password where you can verify that whoever you're talking to is actually whoever you're talking to based on the password. And then last up, we have a Joni who... Yeah, he's just complimenting us and, and mentioned that we've been doing this for a while. It sounds like we know what we're talking about, so I hope we do. Uh, and with that, we're going to close out that section and go into the news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, on the theme of sounding like we know what we're talking about, I guess I'll go ahead and talk a little bit about what OpenAI has been up to recently. So. You probably listening to this have heard about the ChatGPT plugins that came out from OpenAI a while ago. And this was like pretty big news. It's funny that we had this explosion of like startups and ideas people were throwing. There were basically wrappers around ChatGPT and then they roll out plugins and it's like, oh no, a bunch of startups just died. 
Um, I think that people are, are kind of, you know, getting getting the hint a little bit more at this stage. But essentially, the main news here is that they've rolled out more than 70 ChatGPT plugins. And in addition to the classic ability to use third-party tools that this implies, um, this new rollout includes internet access. And so what that kind of gives us, though, is this version of ChatGPT that automatically knows when to use which tool. You might have seen uh, different sort of open source projects like AutoGPT that you can kind of prompt and say, hey, I'd like you to complete this task. And then it's able to essentially break that task down into a set of things it needs to do, figure out what the appropriate tools to use are, and then accomplish that task in a series of steps. And so, of course, this isn't exactly the same as AutoGPT, but it's really becoming a little bit more powerful in terms of the tool use required to do such a thing, having that autonomy. Um, I think there are a lot of interesting things to get into here. Andre, I'd love to hear a little bit about what stuck out to you. Just the list of it, 70 is quite a bit to launch with, and it is now opened up to anyone subscribed to ChatGPT Plus before it was on a wait list. So some examples are uh, shopping search platforms for clothing and food and car rentals, uh, kind of going into that Google market. And there are uh, practical applications like loading the content of a PDF into a chat to discuss it, generating prompts, searching for good one-word domains. A lot of these you know, uh, things that have already popped up, now you can just do with ChatGPT. And one other thing I think is interesting is that conceptually implementing this is not that hard. Like behind the scenes, most likely what they're doing is just calling to retrieve some text from each plugin and then just feeding that to ChatGPT before it generates the output. So personally, I would expect this to be integrated into uh, the Bing chat and Bard from Google and basically any LLM pretty quickly. And I would expect almost any website, any service to expose this sort of API to AI systems and it just becomes standard. Yeah, we are going to see a little bit about how Google is integrating this into their products later, but still, I guess, commenting on ChatGPT and OpenAI's place here, the fact that these plugins are getting rolled out to basically everyone on ChatGPT+, as opposed to just being available via waitlist, is also kind of one, one key thing here. And I guess what we're going to see is just more and more of this availability. There are some concerns that we're going to discuss later that get brought up in the context of Google shoving LLMs into everything due to competitive pressures. And I think that the kind of openness to offering a chatbot with this form of tool use kind of applies here too, at least a little bit. Um, but then also just a notion of this as like we're starting with a chatbot and in its initial form, just like as a chatbot, it can already do a lot of stuff. But when you start to add these sort of plugins, we, we kind of see this evolution into a platform as well. Exactly. And uh, personally, I think it's it's a huge deal uh, giving these things internet access to retrieve facts that they don't know and additional tools like finding weather or you know searching for reviews that just takes them to a whole other level where before they were just question answering machines more or less or you know little generators of answers or essays now they can be used as apps essentially as an interface a conversation interface 
instead of a visual interface to do all sorts of stuff. And it's very, very general. Uh, so yeah, as a paradigm shift in terms of how you use computers and the internet, it is a big deal. Speaking of ChatGPT, next up we have how to delete your data from ChatGPT, which is, as you might imagine, a little uh, article to cover that. Uh, it starts by mentioning that maybe you want to do that. Uh, there's a chance that ChatGPT knows personal details about you, uh, and you might want to delete your history of chats uh, if you do care about privacy concerns. So OpenAI has now introduced the personal data removal request form that allows people, primarily in Europe, to ask information about them to be removed from OpenAI systems. And this is information, I guess, actually not shared in your history of chats, but that they gathered from the internet. So you can, just as you can try and remove yourself from search engines, uh, or other websites, you can now remove yourself from being known by the LLM. And this is quite related to uh, Italy's ban on ChatGPT, uh, EU regulators, Canada. This is addressing a lot of those privacy concerns by different countries. Yeah, there is a lot of attention on OpenAI right now. And so it, it seems like this is almost... A, a natural evolution of what was going to happen. As you pointed out, Andre, um, if ChatGPT you know, doesn't know personal details about you, then yes, it's probably just going to make something up. And I think I, you and probably many of our listeners have seen like a number of examples on Twitter of people asking ChatGPT about themselves and just, it comes up with some pretty hilariously wrong answers. Um, and you mentioned Italy and the EU. We've also seen Canada investigating privacy implications. There's one case where ChatGPT generated incorrect statements saying a law professor was involved in a sexual harassment scandal, that a mayor in Australia had been implicated in a bribery scandal, and that mayor is preparing to sue for defamation right now. Meanwhile, Samsung has banned employees from using generative AI tools, and I'm also aware that a number of other companies have sort of their own ideas or, or kind of third-party generative AI policies about whether their employees internally can use something like ChatGPT or not. Um, maybe they don't necessarily totally restrict it, although in some cases they do, but you do have to be kind of very careful about what data you're handing off to it. So there is really um, a lot of scrutiny that is going on right now. Yeah, and it is... Uh... Definitely warranted, I think, just because you should be able to say, you know, don't tell people my private details. There's a chance it knows your address. I don't know. You know, it could have found some random website where you mentioned it once or your phone number. So uh, definitely, I think it's good to introduce this. And it's also a reminder to all of us to remember that you need to take any output from ChatGPT with a grain of salt. Basically, we should treat it similar to Wikipedia, where yes, a lot of the time it's a good resource and it does kind of cover things well, but also anything on Wikipedia and anything ChatGPT said could be incorrect. And we need to refer to more reliable sources to really make sure those are true. Yeah, yeah, a good flag to be kind of careful with with your use. There are, I guess, a, a couple more interesting things here. So, in in the form, we have 
like a set of a set of fields they ask you to fill out about whom you're acting on behalf of the country whose law sort of applies that might prompt you to fill out this personal data removal form, typically your country of residence, a bunch of information about the the data subject. Um, so, you know, as, as opposed to the person filling out the form um, and, and some evidence of data processing section. So you might give them relevant prompts and screenshots of where it's expressed knowledge of information about you. Um, and I guess this is this is interesting for multiple reasons. I mean, for one, the information you have to provide, but then for another, um, kind of in line with what we're seeing with a lot of these models, ChatGPT has already been pre-trained on loads of internet data. So it's unlikely, very unlikely, that your personal data removal request form, which, I mean, if you want to go through with that or delete your chat history, there are ways to do that, but you should know that that, that, that isn't going to erase that information from the training data necessarily. It's more about updating the responses that ChatGPT might provide. So somewhere in there, it still kind of knows about you. And I guess one thing to be aware of then is that perhaps if, if prompted in the right way, somebody really looking for it could still probably dig that information up. Yeah, exactly. Editing out information is not trivial and is like editing anything in language models is unreliable. So I'm sure OpenAI has a lot of knowledge on how to do that, but uh, it is not necessarily foolproof. And just as a final thing, I mentioned chat history. Uh, that is a thing you can also do in the tool right now. You can toggle off chat history and training in the settings. Uh, so if you want to not have data from your chats with ChatGPT, where you may have exposed some personal information, you should probably go ahead and do that as well. Moving on from uh, ChatGPT to BARD and Google. We had last week Google I.O., actually just before we uh, recorded, and it was all about AI. Google I.O. is the annual uh, thing that Google does where they make a lot of announcements about products and try to get people hyped up. This one was pretty much all AI, and there's compilations where you see the CEO just say AI, and it's like 20 times. Um, and yeah, it's it's it was a pretty successful event. Google stock went up by something like 6% uh, after it. Uh, the main announcements are all these integrations. So Palm 2, which is their new language model building on top of Palm 1, uh, was announced and appears to be a pretty good improvement. We'll be talking about it in the research section. But in this conference, they said that it'll be integrated into over 25 products, including Maps, Docs, Gmail, Sheets, and Bard. So for instance, you can type, write me a job description into a text box in Google Docs, and Palm will do that. And Google is also opening up access to BART, so you no longer have to be on a wait list. You can go ahead and just try it, and it's uh, free for everyone. So it is, yeah, kind of a big move by uh, Google, much like Microsoft, which we already discussed, is integrating the language models into every single Microsoft product, including Word and Excel, Google is doing the same thing uh, into all their products. And um, yeah, if you're using Google Docs or Sheets or Maps, you may not want to use ChatGPT anymore because it's just right there and in, in what you're already doing. 
there are a lot of things going on here. One is the clear signal that this is really the biggest push yet from Google when it comes to incorporating AI into their different products. And I think that with everything that's been going on recently, we saw the merging of DeepMind and Google Brain just happen. And that kind of makes you wonder about this classic evolution we see in industry research labs, even ones that might start out more theoretical, more blue sky. Um, they eventually seem to become either much more product focused and start making that direct impact, or they just completely get shuttered. You can also kind of see the sort of direct ways in which Google is trying to compete with GPT-4 and so on. So for example, apparently BARD is soon going to allow people to prompt it using images as well as words, and that the chatbot will be able to reply to queries with pictures. So those are those are a couple of super interesting things I found here. Um, but I guess, I guess another aspect of this too is, um, I guess very broadly, the way I, I see this playing into things, we are seeing a lot of, of race dynamics going on. And so I guess it's, it's really, it's really kind of inevitable that Google was going to step into the fold in something like this, really foregrounding the idea of AI when it comes to what their product strategy looks like. Um, but I, I guess also just as an artifact, it seems like um, Google, I always thought about it as a company that supported, you know, these very long-term research bats that may or may not pan out. And I do feel like there's a little bit of this dynamic of let's buckle down and get really product focused here. Yeah. I mean, it's not a surprising response given all the criticism they faced for falling behind from ChatGPT and the risk of them losing a lot of the market share to Microsoft and Bing, which actually has not materialized. Uh, Google is still way ahead. Not many people switched to Bing. And yeah, um, Google is just going all in as maybe might have been expected. This could be not great because there's still a lot of things we don't understand about these giant models and a lot of potential misuses of them. But I guess it's just full steam ahead with everything right now, and Google is going right in there as well. Maybe maybe just as one last thought, I think to add one last thing to what you were saying, it does feel like Google certainly had the ability to do what they were doing now and earlier, but it does seem like they wanted to hold themselves back a little bit due to some of the risks we're talking about, potential for backfire, responsibility issues. But now that OpenAI has begun pushing the label in this direction, it seems like nobody really has a choice unless everybody slows down. Exactly. And ChatGPT, uh, OpenAI is being sued for data collection and for you know misinformation and so on. So Google may also have that sort of trouble now. On to our quick coverage section, where we'll just be running ahead pretty quick, uh, starting with Apple's new personal voice feature can create a voice that sounds like you or a loved one in just 15 minutes. So Apple actually has been very behind on AI for a while, uh, not doing much research and not really releasing much. So now they're trying to catch up, just like everyone. 
And this is actually an accessibility update. So the idea is if you are starting to lose your voice, such as someone with a recent diagnosis of ALS, um, this with 15 minutes of data of you speaking could still uh, capture your voice and then uh, can be used to read some text uh, and then send that uh, as speech instead of having some sort of automated AI sounding speech. So pretty intriguing, a nice accessibility option. Uh, I wonder if people will use this just to create, you know, voice prints for other purposes. Yes. The the first thing I thought of when I looked at this piece was exactly what we were discussing earlier when where you see people who are making fake recordings of people's children or something to, you know, trick them for very nefarious purposes here. I guess we have yet to see how good this personal voice feature will be if it's able to simulate affect, that sort of thing to make it believable enough. But if it is good, that could be potentially troubling. Yeah. One thing to note, I guess that I haven't mentioned is that this is done by reading some randomized set of text prompts. So you need not some arbitrary audio, you need to actually have specific audio, uh, which is pretty important. Mm. Uh, so it probably will primarily be used for your own voice, but you can still use it to like automate reading an essay or recording YouTube or something, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of mitigating. So moving on to our next quick coverage, if you spend much time on Twitter, you might have seen this photo from a little while ago of the Pope in this great looking designer jacket, very puffy. It was quite the photo. And um, after that went viral, of course, uh, I believe it was generated by Midjourney. And so you're seeing a lot of instances, I think, where people are generating nice images like this, but there is the classic worry about what nefarious purposes could these be put towards. So naturally, just as people are working towards how can we identify AI-generated text, which is in itself a very, very difficult problem and entirely another rabbit hole, Google has launched a new tool to help people identify fake AI images online. Um, and so users of Google's image search now basically can see this additional context alongside pictures that include details on when the image first appeared on Google and any related related news stories. Yeah, and uh, this tool named About This Image uh, is supposed to basically surface news stories about fake images that have been debunked. So in that way, there have been a bunch of articles about this uh, Pope jacket thing, and now you can see the articles that say that it is debunked. And I think it's a, it's a pretty promising approach. So uh, good job, Google, on that one. Next up, Amazon plans to add ChatGPT-style search to its online store. So this is not really announced. There have been some job postings reviewed by Bloomberg News, and it sure sounds like Amazon plans to use something like ChatGPT. Uh, they are um, a listing for a senior software developer uh, who would uh, mentions remanaging Amazon search with an interactive conversational experience. Another one said a new AI first initiative to re-architect and reinvent the way we do search with an extremely large next generation deep learning techniques. 
So yeah, pretty much Amazon is going to at least work on uh, ChatGPT style stuff through its search. We close out this section by venturing a little bit out of big tech into the company weights and biases that you might be aware of. Great experiment tracking tool. They are introducing a, this new LLM debugging tool with a trace timeline and trace table. It's basically an extension of their experiment tracking. It supports ML practitioners working on prompt engineering for LLMs. You can review past results, identify and debug errors, gather insights about model behavior, share learnings with colleagues, um, really just kind of visualize and drill down into a lot of the different components and activity throughout your program. It's kind of a, a nice application that we've seen of debugging capabilities of LLMs, uh, sort of in coordination with, with human programmers. Um, in addition, there is a section model architecture that provides a detailed description of all the settings, tools, agents, prompt details within the topology of a particular chain. So um, again, just another really neat, interesting tool. Yeah, and a real sign of how integral prompting and language models are that there's a whole dedicated tool specifically for it of uh, the weights and biases prompts tool moving on to applications and business first story is generative ai breaks the data center data center infrastructure and operating costs projected to increase to over 76 billion by uh, 2028. So this is by Tyrius uh, Research and is a forecast of what I just said. Uh, it's a huge increase. So this is more than twice the estimated annual operating cost of Amazon's cloud service AWS, which has 30% of a market share in cloud infrastructure. It's basically predicting that generative AI will uh, cost around uh, what ev all the entire cloud is costing right now. So within five years, Gen AI will roughly double or um, even yeah make things cost a crazy amount. And this is incorporating uh, pretty aggressive predictions of improvement in hardware performance. And uh, that is overrun by a prediction of like a 50 times increase in processing workloads. So yeah, if you're running something in the cloud compared to most software, this AI stuff is very expensive and just compute heavy. And according to these predictions, it does seem like the, the expense is just going to grow and grow. Although that being said, there is a lot of research and work right now that is going towards trying to deal with that increase in processing workload. So it's not inconceivable that a single breakthrough in a technique like distillation, compression, data efficiency could really bring down any of their cost estimates by like a factor of 10. So there's some pretty wide error bars to, to deal with here. Um, I guess, you know, the, the hope then would be that improvements in hardware compute outdo expectations. The increase in processing workloads does not meet expectations. So we are going to kind of see a race here between efficiency gains making things cheaper and the growing demand. Indeed. And as we've discussed before, it's very tricky to actually make a business model out of these uh, language models because it's so expensive to actually generate the data compared to something like search. So the companies have a very strong incentive to try and uh, drive down the compute requirements. And there is 
at least a significant chance that they could do better than you know four times improvements, but it remains to be seen. Let's talk about crypto. And uh, I promise we're not becoming a crypto podcast right at this moment, but you may know that OpenAI CEO Sam Altman is involved with a cryptocurrency called WorldCoin. If you go to WorldCoin's website, they state that they are building the world's largest identity and financial network as a public utility, giving ownership to everyone. They aim to create universal access to the global economy regardless of country or background, accelerating the transition to an economic future that welcomes and benefits every person on the planet. Um, And there's a couple of interesting things about this cryptocurrency. I guess the way it works is they use this iris scanning technology. Um, They want you to have this digital identity that proves you are a real and unique person while fully protecting your privacy. Um, a A lot of other things here, but... The the news that is going on um, is really that uh, that Worldcoin is in talks to raise a hundred million dollars ahead of its launch, and this is kind of amid a rough season for digital, digital currencies. Um, we're seeing a bit of a crypto winter right now, but it's interesting, I suppose, to to see what Worldcoin is doing here. Yeah, and and the claim is because uh, AI is making it easier to fake identity and and to you know break existing verification systems. Being able to scan your eye and have this crypto security thing might be needed in this age of AI. So that's why this is related, and of course because this is the OpenAI CEO. We'll see how this goes. Uh, maybe this will finally be an actual use of crypto. But uh, we are not going to be covering crypto <laughs> anymore. So that's, that's it for us. All right. And moving on to quick coverage. First up, we have OpenAI confirms ChatGPT data breach. So this actually was kind of a big deal. I'm surprised I haven't heard this more. But evidently, OpenAI has confirmed that a bug in the AI source code resulted in a breach of sensitive data. This was in a database where OpenAI stores user information and uh, the hackers were able to access the user's chat history. Uh, Approximately 1.2% of ChatGPT Plus subscribers who were active on March 20th may have had payment information compromised due to a bug. It has exposed names, email addresses, payment addresses, credit card types, and the last four digit of credit card numbers. It appears to be kind of a big deal. It sounds like um, OpenAI is, of course, emphasizing that the number of affected users was very low. That being said, there still were quite a few people affected, 1.2% of ChatGPT Plus subscribers. I, I don't know exactly what their ChatGPT Plus subscriber numbers look right now, but certainly not not a super small number of people. Uh, they did patch the vulnerability shortly after discovery, but that being said, uh, be careful where you put your stuff online, people. <laughs> Yeah, uh, OpenAI has scaled up ChatGPT super quickly to a super large amount of people. So, you know, it might not be super surprising that there were vulnerabilities. And let's hope that they are now patching up anything else that may be bad. Next, uh, Deal Dive AI relationship coach MRI offers more questions than answers. So, 
This company is building an AI relationship coach to help people grow and foster real-life connections by offering advice and answering uh, to relationship questions. This was founded by former Tinder CEO and was incubated in Andrew Ng's AI fund, Andrew Ng being a very prominent AI researcher and investor. Uh, They raised an undisclosed amount of pre-seed Funding that only took 24 hours to raise, and yeah, this this is uh, kind of a lot given it's kind of a weird concept, a lot of potential risk there, and I doubt they have much of a product to showcase right now. It is interesting to see companies still being able to raise so much like this. Um, it's I, I hear a lot about the VC environment right now and the way that investors are spending less. Um, but you still do see these stories where it looks like there's a lot of a lot of AI FOMO, and it sounds like this was not a small pre-seed round. Um, so it's 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 interesting to look at. Um, that being said, uh, you know, usually when a company doesn't disclose the total amount of funding, um, it is small. But in this case, it does look like it was actually a, a pretty big round. So um, pretty pretty interesting case we're looking at here. Let's look at another startup raise. So uh, (laughs) another AI startup called Rewind has raised a pretty significant amount of money, it looks like. So their uh, co-founder and CEO Dan Soroker shared the link to an online forum on April 14th. He asked investors to state the highest amount you're comfortable paying between $200 million and $1 billion. This was, um, of course, a pretty risky experiment, especially given the declining valuation environment we're seeing in startup land right now. Um, But on May 9th, Soroker told prospective investors in an email that NEA had committed $12 million and would lead the round at a $350 million valuation, which is 4.5 times the $75 million of the $75 million valuation that Andreessen Horowitz agreed to in a funding round last year. Yeah. So pretty unusual. Usually uh, in startup founders go to VCs and pitch them and sort of ask them to give money. Here, it was the opposite. The founder said, basically, give me your offers and I'll see who I like the best. Uh, Definitely an unusual uh, fundraising. And here, it sounds like actually there were higher offers and um, the... This was not the highest bid. It was just the best fit. And yeah, it's pretty interesting how how crazy some people are to invest. So uh, interesting case. Indeed. Next up, we have Hippocratic is building a large language model for healthcare. This is Hippocratic AI, pretty nice name. And it emerged from stealth with a whopping 50 million in seed financing behind it, and let's just say a high valuation. It was founded by a group of physicians, hospital administrators, Medicare professionals, and AI researchers from a bunch of famous organizations. Yeah, and they claim that they created the first safety-focused large language model designed specifically 
for healthcare. And the mission is to develop that safest AI general intelligence to dramatically improve healthcare accessibility and outcomes. It's worth noting that that their CEO emphasized Hippocratic isn't focused on diagnosing. That's a pretty important distinction to make here. Rather, the tech is aimed at things like explaining benefits and billing, providing dietary advice and medication reminders, answering pre-op questions, onboarding patients, delivering negative test results that indicate nothing's wrong. I, I do think it's kind of interesting just to look at in healthcare, we're probably going to see pretty limited applications first. I do think that the kind of consumer-facing applications, insofar as they're open-ended, could bear similar risks, but we'll have to see this one play out. Yeah, consumer-facing is easier to go with, uh, given that there's much less regulation. If you're trying to get things in hospitals, that's really tricky. So I'm not too surprised, uh, but uh, maybe in a few years, we'll see things that doctors use. On to projects and open source. First up, we have EU AI Act to target US open source software. This was a pretty dramatic uh, blog post uh, that generated a lot of discussions in AI and tech circles. So the story here is that VU has amended its AI Act that would ban American companies or some American companies from providing API access to generative AI models, potentially. And there are exceptions for traditional machine learning models uh, that aren't, let's say, large language models, but it doesn't have this exception for generative models. So any model made available in the EU has to first pass extensive and expensive licensing and will subject companies to fines of a lot <laughs> if you don't pass that. So for open source developers and things like GitHub, they are still offering uh, technically these models. So it's seemingly banning open source development of these models. Uh, essentially, the EU is ordering large American companies to um, do these expensive uh, operations and restricting any competition from smaller players, including open source that cannot comply with these restrictions. There are quite a few main provisions of the act, and a lot of them are basically what Andre just talked about. Um, the sort of very broad jurisdiction that the act has, including providers, deployers of AI systems. Um, and so you also have to register high-risk AI projects or foundational models with the government, which is something we probably could have expected. The expensive risk testing, um, the fact that risk is vaguely defined. They mention a risk to democracy, which is something you might wonder about. Um, open source LLMs not being exempt, APIs being banned, open source developers being, being liable. Um, a lot of different techniques that you might want to use for training these systems sort of not being allowed. Uh, so the way the way that Andre's kind of uh, mentioned and, and put what the act is doing does raise a lot of troubling concerns. The, the article that we have been looking at here calls this a deeply corrupt piece of legislation. And it is interesting to see um, putting it in the way of putting small businesses well out of business. That does seem like a, a repeat kind of of what happened with GDPR. The fact that you're going to expect larger companies to be able to comply with guidelines more easily, to cough up the money, to have the legal firepower to do something about it. And so 
I, I do wonder, is the EU not learning from that mistake? Is this, I, I don't know, it's kind of hard to, to sort of parse what's going on here. Exactly. And to be fair, this is a pretty complicated document and this is just the analysis and uh, kind of details provided by this one blog post. It could well be that uh, perhaps the licensing is not that hard or for small developers, it would be easier. Or maybe they will amend it because the language is not entirely clear and they don't address open source explicitly. for instance, maybe they particularly target uh, very large language models and not some of these smaller models we've seen in uh, open source recently. So maybe take this with a grain of salt. Uh, we are not legal experts and we have not analyzed this amendment. But if true, these are very, very significant things. We've been talking a lot about how open source has been moving very rapidly and has spurred a lot of innovation and progress and banning it is a pretty big deal. And also apparently there is an exemption for R&D and clean energy systems, which is somewhat interesting. So if you're doing research and development as a company, you are exempt, (laughs) which seems to be all about giving uh, companies in the EU an advantage, uh, which is interesting. So... Yeah, it's it's quite a development and kind of a big deal. Let's talk about another startup raise. So according to one source, generative AI startups raised $1.7 billion in Q1 of this year, with apparently an additional $10.68 billion, almost $11 billion worth of deals announced in the quarter, but not yet completed. And we're, we're seeing a pretty interesting landscape, despite the fact that we have these incumbents like OpenAI and Anthropic, VCs are really not shying away from some untested players here. Um, so to look at one case in point, Together is a startup developing open source generative AI. They announced that they raised $20 million, which is on the larger side for a seed round that was led by Lux Capital with a bunch of other investors on the ticket as well. Um, And not only these sort of classic investors, but there were a suite of high profile angel investors, which include Scott Bannister, one of the co-founders of PayPal, and Jeff Hammerbacher, a Cloudera founding employee. this company is the brainchild of some some pretty big names. They include uh, Percy Leong and Chris Ray. So uh, a pretty interesting race to look at here. Indeed. And as you mentioned, this is in the open source section because they are building open source generative AI models. Uh, and in their own words, they want to help organizations incorporate AI in, into their production applications. So probably the money will come from this cloud platform for running and training and fine-tuning open source models that the co-founders claim will offer scalable compute at lower prices than the dominant players. Seems like kind of a big, ambitious project, but Chris Ray uh, and Percy Young are both Stanford professors. Chris Ray has had a lot of success already with another startup. Percy Young has also worked on some ventures so given that and also these uh, other uh, co-founders that I'm not as aware of, but presumably are also impressive, uh, I think this will definitely be a major player. Next up, 
Again, we're talking about Stability AI, which seems to be just on a roll of releasing open source stuff. We keep talking about it every week. So this week, they released an open source text to animation tool. They announced this stable animation SDK, which can generate video from three different inputs, including text alone, text and an initial image, text and an initial, uh, initial input video. So. Yeah, now they can do animation. I did look into the article and the animation seems kind of rough. Uh, in general, video synthesis is still unsolved and animation is basically that. And this is not like their other models that you can just visit the website and use. To actually use this, you need to get the open source models and set it up yourself. Mm. Yeah, the cost uh, of operations on this too is based off of a, a credit system, depends on the video dimensions, do you do render mode, so it could be more or less expensive. Um, it is kind of fun to see these tools though. I do feel like we're still in that phase where we are, the videos that people are generating with these types of tools just look so surreal, but I, I'm, I'm almost like, I don't want to get to the point where the videos actually start looking realistic because the phase we're in right now, every video that I see show up on Twitter, like hamburger ads or, you know, a celebrity eating hot dogs are just so wild that I kind of don't want this phase to disappear. Exactly. I think a while ago we talked about how this is like the meme era of video generation, similar to what we saw last year. And yeah, it's fun. And it's been fun seeing uh, on Instagram, some you know uh, some just regular people making cool stuff of ai that isn't just generating cool images last up in this section we have a listener submission pandas ai is a python library that adds generative ai capabilities to the popular data analysis and manipulation tool that if you're a programmer you might already know called pandas it is designed to be used in conjunction with that library as opposed to a replacement. Um, basically what it does is it allows, it makes pandas conversational. So you can ask questions about your data and get answers back in the form of pandas data frames. So you could ask pandas AI to find all the rows in a data frame where the value of a column is greater than five. It'll return a data frame containing only those rows, which I think is super, super cool. Um, I, I remember, not that many years ago for you know various jobs or internships having to write SQL. And it's something you can become pretty conversant and fluent in after a little bit of time, but especially for slightly more complex queries, it can get a bit painful and annoying to deal with. So the fact that we're now seeing tools where you can do this kind of thing in natural language, I think is super exciting. Definitely, I imagine there are things that do the same thing for SQL. Pandas is... Pretty much a kind of a way to do SQL queries in Python with data that is in memory. And I've used it quite a bit in my time at grad school to go over experimental results and graph things. And from the repo, it looks like you can do quite a lot of it. So if you're working with pandas, this might be worth checking out. Next up is our research and advancement section. First off, we have an exciting paper from Google, the Palm 2 technical report. This is a new state-of-the-art language model because everything is state-of-the-art now. And it is better multilingual and reasoning capabilities. It is more compute efficient. 
than its predecessor, Palm, that came out in 2022. It is a transformer-based model, surprise, surprise, trained using a mixture of objectives similar to another model called the UL2 from this year as well. Um, basically, again, you know, it's a, another, we have a, a pretty large, nice transformer model. It's achieved state-of-the-art performance on a bunch of things um, and it incorporates a, a pretty diverse set of research advances though. So one is on compute optimal scaling. You, If you've heard of the Chinchilla paper that came out of DeepMind from a while ago, it showed that data size is at least as important as model size. And Meta, of course, came out with a suite of models later on that actually took this insight even further and just continued training models that were not super big and found that even, even more training, even more data actually continued to improve model performance. Um, they also introduced improved data set mixtures. So previous large pre-trained models uh, typically used a data set that was dominated by English text. Um, so in a 2022 paper in Palm, uh, this was about 78% of non-code. So they designed a more multilingual and diverse pre-training mixture. Um, and then also some architectural and objective improvements. So again, model architecture is based on the transformer and past LLMs used almost exclusively this single um, kind of masked language modeling objective that basically uh, only allows like words in a sentence to sort of care about words in the past in terms of how they're represented to the model. Um, but given the strong results of this model UL2 that was introduced this year, they use a, they use a kind of different mixture of pre-training objectives in the model to train it to understand some, some different aspects of language. Exactly. And uh, as a result of all these techniques, they say that their largest variant of Palm 2 is significantly smaller than the Palm model, which is just from last year. The largest Palm model was something like 540 billion parameters. Uh, but with more compute and with all these techniques, they are able to get way better performance in Palm 2 while being smaller and more efficient and fast. Now, similar to GPT-4, this technical report doesn't really tell us much more than this. It doesn't tell us the architecture or the mixture of the data. It more or less just covers the uh, performance and, and you know, showing off. Uh, still useful. A lot of insights you can glean from it. We are not going to go too much into it, but just recently there was a supposed leak that did introduce some more details. Supposedly, Palm 2 is more like 300 billion parameters, roughly, and its training size is about four times that of the initial Palm. Not super shocking, kind of not too insightful. And yeah, this this doesn't reveal too much that you might not have expected, from the sequel to Palm, it reaffirms that a lot of the advancements that have been pretty popular and uh, adopted, like Chinchilla, and getting specific mixtures of data are very important. And Palm 2 now powers BARD and all the stuff that Google I.O. announced. This was actually announced uh, about the same time as I.O. So um, yeah, not anything technically super interesting here, but it is cool that in their introduction, when they mention all of these different components, they cite the original papers that inspired them. So even if we don't know their architecture and the data set, we do know sort of technically how they did it 
and where we can get the details of these different uh, components of our approach. I, I expect even given those references you mentioned, it's probably only a matter of time before somebody tries and at least partially succeeds to create an open source reasonable looking version of what's going on here. Um, we saw many GPT-4 recently, for example, and it was kind of interesting. Again, of course, not knowing GPT-4's architecture exactly, I can't speak to how close it is architecturally, um, but many GPT-4 at least, they did note the authors that they observed some pretty similar capabilities and observations in many GPT-4 compared to real GPT-4. So it'll, it'll be interesting if we see something similar with Palm 2 here. Exactly. Uh, last note here is there are not many comparisons to GPT-4 in terms of performance in the paper. Um, informally, the impression seems to be that it's not quite as good, but it's close, maybe like 90% of its performance. So it's, it's competitive with ChatGPT and BARD had been underwhelming so far. Uh, on a few data sets, it looks like Palm 2 can beat it, uh, at least on things like Winograd or RxC or Drop, these NLP things, which are not super indicative, but still important. So yeah, if you have tried BARD earlier and were unimpressed, maybe you should check it out now and see what you think. Next up, we go to Microsoft. And this is about this idea of automatic prompt optimization, a simple and general purpose framework for automatic optimization of LLM prompts. So we've been talking a little bit, I think, in research lately on how we can automate uh, optimization of prompts. Uh, last week, we had one of those things. And this is another example of that. So the gist of how this works is actually pretty interesting. Basically, you take your initial prompt and then you search across a variety of kind of variations of it, new candidate prompts. And then there's a selection process that is used to decide which of those are worth carrying forward to the next iteration. So you explore a lot of candidates. It's almost like evolutionary optimization in a way. And uh, unsurprisingly, it helped. And I got to say, I've recently been doing a lot of uh, prompt optimization and fairly subtle things turn out to matter, like capitalizing do not versus not. Uh, so I could definitely see this being a very useful tool for people using LLMs. Yeah, um, the way... I guess the, the kind of optimization process that you mentioned that is used to generate new prompts is super interesting. So I just, just grabbing a quotation here, um, it says a beam search is an iterative optimization process where for each iteration, the current prompt is used to generate many new candidate prompts. That's an expansion. And next, the selection process is used to decide which prompts are worth carrying forward to the next iteration. And so that kind of allows for your incremental improvements and exploration over multiple prompt candidates, kind of reminding us of that exploratory, almost evolutionary algorithm approach going on here, um, which, again, is uh, kind of nice. It's a highly interpretable optimization process. It doesn't require access to the model's weights or activations and, and really um, is, I guess, taking the term prompt engineering and doing that very, very literally. Here, they, they do use gradients a little bit, 
So they use it specifically for generating those additional prompt candidates. So they look at where the gradients are, and then they generate that bit of text. As you can imagine, if you have a very long prompt, just randomly switching it out, as you usually do in evolutionary techniques, would not be very efficient. So that's why they do use that backpropagation information to vary it up. But then after that, it's more of a search procedure that's iterative, like we see with um, evolutionary techniques. So yeah, pretty good advancement. It seems like cool technique and could be operationalized pretty soon. Next up, we have a paper called Threats by Artificial Intelligence to Human Health and Human Existence, which is a, a, fun, a fun paper name to see today, given the kinds of discussions we're having right now. The paper includes, I think, largely what you would expect. So first off, it describes three ways misused narrow AI serves as a threat to human health. That is through increasing opportunities for control and manipulation of people, enhancing and dehumanizing lethal weapon capacity, and rendering human labor increasingly obsolescent, your classic future of work problem. It examines self-improving AGI and how this could pose an existential threat. So really, I think this paper is actually kind of a lot of, a lot of stuff we've heard before. But the interesting thing I want to point out about this paper is that it appeared in a journal called BMJ Global Health. This is an open access online journal dedicated to publishing peer-reviewed content, et cetera, but it's specifically for an audience in global health, including policymakers, funders, researchers, clinicians, and frontline healthcare workers. So I guess the, the really interesting thing to me is that we are seeing these concerns and also the use of the term AGI kind of being mainstreamed more and used in a, a serious journal paper in a pretty different community. Yep. To expand on that, actually, the authors here have a non-computer science background. So they come from global health and development. They come from neurosurgery as part of the International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War program, uh, an interbedent researcher on human rights, and yeah, basically no computer science people, people more involved in global, global uh, health and human rights. I quite like this paper. I think in AI safety with many of these computer science people, they don't actually bother to enumerate these specific threats. They just say, you know, if we have super smart AGI, it will create some sort of crazy technology that will kill us all. These three ways of misusing narrow AI or just powerful AI that isn't necessarily super advanced are things that I would say are quite worrying that, you know, control or, or obsolution, things like that. This will make I think with pretty high probability, a very bad impact compared to something very speculative like extinction risk. What is uh, your take? Yeah, I, I do like that the paper kind of tried to go through some of these issues explicitly. I guess the, so I was, I was pretty happy with, you know, they're sort of breaking out threats to democracy, privacy, and liberty versus peace and safety versus work and livelihoods. Um, again, I think that also in the context of it was a pretty short paper, they can only address these issues to a certain extent. And so um, much ink has been spilled on the future of work problem, for instance. And I think that there are a lot of debates and insights that probably require 
um, you know, the insight of economists and other folks to be had in that specific dimension. And there's only so much his paper can do about it. But I do think it is good um, in a sense that they are bringing some of these concerns, again, to a different community. Um, the whole existential threat portion, again, you know, sort of worth including, but I still kind of go back and forth on the whole, like, language of self-improving AGI. And, you know, you might have issues about whether or not you believe that. Um, Ted Chiang, the science fiction writer, had a really interesting article, I want to say for The New Yorker a little while back, about how he really thinks that, um, self-improving superintelligence kind of just isn't a thing and something that the people who argue for it almost define into existence. I haven't thought of like a way to really formalize his argument against it. I'm kind of interested to see what that looks like. But again, you know, I think it's, um, I do worry a little bit just about the sort of non-technical communities appropriating some of this self-improvement language and then kind of where that goes. As we continue in this conversation, it's been kind of a niche topic, uh, AI safety and AI extension risk. And we've seen a lot of people jump in and start thinking about it, talking about it. So it'll be interesting to see the convergence of these different communities and backgrounds. I think seeing the way that this group of people and this community thinks about it is pretty refreshing and different from what we've seen in computer science. Computer scientists generally don't know policy very much or like societal structures, which I would imagine uh, healthcare professionals or especially human rights advocates might do better at. So probably an article or a paper that I'd actually want to read to uh, see their take. Next, we are going to go to a more technical paper, which is quite interesting. It is titled Steering GPT to Excel by Adding an Activation Vector. So as a metaphor with uh, AI-generated images, it used to be that you could do things like generate an image of a face and then add some sort of vector to, for instance, say, uh, glasses. So if you do this addition operation of the glasses vector and the face vector, you get a face with a vector. And this is essentially that idea for language models. So essentially, you can get a steering prompt, uh, which is just a general concept like love. And then you can get a another prompt, which is your actual prompt, so to speak. Uh, so <laughs> they have an example of I hate you because you are a coward as the original prompt. And then when they add the activation, so this is when you run this steering uh, prompt, you get the activations, the outputs of units in the neural net. And then you just combine the outputs of this initial steering prompt and the actual prompt, and that modifies the output according to the steering prompt. So if you add the love activations to this original output, uh, it says, I hate you because you're a wonderful person. Uh, so yeah, it's actually quite interesting and might have quite a bit of implications. It might mean that you don't need to fine tune to change your model properties. You might not need to do as much uh, editing of a prompt and prompt modification because you can now modify with activations. It's an interesting finding that you can just do this in general and 
yeah, it's cool to have more understanding of language models. I'm super excited about a lot of the papers like this on model controllability. We saw another one called Pask Vectors a while ago, where basically, I mean, the code was as simple as the idea. You could literally just subtract the weights between various fine-tuned or pre-trained versions of a single model and kind of make predictable expectations about when you did that subtraction, the resulting model, what did its performance look like along different task dimensions? And so the fact that you can actually not only do this, but then also compose those transformations, I think, um, really starts to affect a really powerful mechanism for stealing, steering these models in certain ways that could be pertinent to you know, safety and reliability or the kinds of outputs you might want to have. And I think as we are now entering a world where LLM deployment, no matter how concerning it might be, seems inevitable in various products. I do think that these methods um, really deserve a lot of attention. Exactly. So the paper is quite long. There's many more examples. It's probably going to be built upon because I haven't seen much like this. We've seen similar things in NLP in the past, but not so much for uh, language models. Uh, so as always, we link to all these things we discuss in the description. If you want to check out any of these things, uh, check out the description or our Substack to check this out on your own. Moving on to quick coverage. First up, we have an inverse scaling law for clip training. So we've mentioned scaling laws quite a few times. That's the idea that we can predict model performance as we vary things like data size or model size. And inverse scaling laws are one of these things that are kind of more hypothetical of performance decreasing as you increase uh, data model or data. And here, this scaling law that's inverse says that the larger the image text encoder is used and the shorter the sequence length of the image text tokens, that can be applied in training. So basically, scaling up the neural nets means that you can't make as long of a description of the images you want to get with high performance. And it turns out that... Uh, Reducing image text token length actually matters quite a bit for the quality of the scaling law. So, one of the, yeah, somewhat surprising result. Yeah, um, a neat artifact of this is that they were able to successfully train CLIP even using academic resources. So, these were researchers, um, again, not at your, your Googles and so on. So, these, these observations. Um, can be pretty powerful. I think these folks were at UC Santa Cruz. Um, they did study a couple of different uh, token reduction strategies for both image-based and text-based training and found pretty distinct results. Um, so, for example, when they were trying to figure out how can we train CLIP with, um, say, an image, and we want to reduce... So basically, you know, when you have an image and you feed it into... Um, one of the sort of encoders that makes representations out of images. Basically, um, as part of Clip, you know, you feed an image and then it turns um, the, the image into like a sequence of numbers, a vector representation. Um, the less information contained in that image, the sort of smaller it is, quote unquote, the less compute you might have to use. 
And so they sort of did various uh, strategies of like masking the image where they didn't keep everything. They resized it or they only kept like the middle part of an image. Um, so a lot of a lot of interesting details in here. Next up, we have a paper called Active Retrieval Augmented Generation, um, starting off with some motivation. Despite the remarkable ability of large language models to comprehend and generate language, we know that they hallucinate, they create factually inaccurate output. Um, and a promising solution here has been augmenting LLMs by retrieving information from external knowledge of resources. And we've seen actually how powerful this is in a lot of cases with the Wolfram ChatGPT integration. A lot of people in the healthcare space are thinking about this. Um, but most existing retrieval augmented LLMs employ a retrieve and generate setup that only retrieves information a single time based on the input, which is pretty limiting. In more general scenarios, uh, especially when you want to generate long texts, um, it might be useful to continually gather information throughout the generation process. So this paper basically provides um, a generalized view of active retrieval augmented generation in the title that are methods that actively decide when and what to retrieve across the course of the generation. Yeah, and uh, to expand on that, Someone commented that I should not say yeah at the beginning of every response. I'm trying, but it's it's my go-to. Uh, something worth noting is that I think that retrieval augmentation is a pretty important idea for language models and for a lot of these things like hallucination or giving it information it doesn't have. So this is pretty exciting to me. Next, we've discussed a few times how there have been attempts to quantify how good LLMs are for jobs. And now there's a new paper that is titled Professional Certification Benchmark Dataset, the first 500 jobs for large language models. Uh, so this is basically a benchmark where they created a benchmark, uh, a data set of 1,149 professional certification that um, deals more with jobs, with vocational readiness. So this is things like computer-related fields, uh, business analytics, cybersecurity, but also things like licensed counseling, pharmacy, nursing, teaching. And they compare uh, GPT-3 with GPT-3 Turbo on all these tests, this huge number of tests. and yeah, it, there's a lot of uh, these tests and certifications that Turbo GPT 3.5 passes compared to GPT 3, which was actually quite poor in a lot of this stuff. So there was a lot of improvement recently. This is just another sign of that. Yeah, for sure. It's important to um, notice the evolution in these benchmarks. I think we're getting better, but still observe their limitations. When GPT 4 came out, it was tested on various AP exams and a lot of different licensing tests. It did very well on them, according to OpenAI, but then Arvind Narayanan, this professor at Princeton, had a very good essay on GPT-4 and these professional exams. He called them the wrong answer to the wrong question, basically arguing that um, really, when we think about these questions about the future of work, whether something is going to replace your job or not, we are looking 
to assess like actual professional competency. And anybody who's taken a standardized test kind of knows these things are not good at measuring how well you are going to do in college, how well you are going to do on a job. There's some correlation there and there are some important correlations, but certainly they are not as strong or reliable indicators as we might think. So while I'm glad this is a step in the right direction, we still kind of have to be careful in interpreting some of these results. Exactly. I think there are some problematic aspects to the analysis of this paper. It actually is not from a conference. It's from a company called People Tech uh, Inc. So not quite exactly academic. And in the conclusion, they do draw that apparently this means that Turbo GPT 3.5 demonstrate competence in various fields of human expertise. And as Daniel just mentioned, this is not necessarily the case, in particular because, as others have also pointed out, these are standardized exams, they are standardized study materials. This could be just that they particularly can pass these specific tests and not uh, expand beyond that to actual practice. So worth to take this with a grain of salt, but it is a new benchmark. It is open source for others to uh, explore. So at least in that sense, this is definitely useful. Let's talk about how we can use large language models while reducing cost and improving performance, something we would all like to see. There is a new paper called Frugal GPT, where they review the cost associated with querying popular LLM APIs. These include GPT-4, ChatGPT, something called J1 Jumbo. And they find that these models have pretty heterogeneous pricing structures. The fees can order, the fees can differ by two orders of magnitude. And in particular, they, they find that using these LLMs on large collections of queries and text can be pretty expensive. So they discuss a few types of strategies that users can exploit to reduce the inference costs associated with using LLMs. So if you are a ChatGPT or GPT-4 user, this might be interesting for you if you want to save a bit of money. Um, these are specifically called prompt adaptation, LLM approximation, and LLM cascade. Um, there's, there's quite a bit going on here. Uh, you can look into the paper for some more details on what's going on. Yes, uh, we actually haven't read these quick coverage papers necessarily, just skimmed them. So FYI, we do kind of quote a lot from the abstracts uh, and we're not intending to plagiarize the text. We do quote quite a bit from what they say. Um, the paper claims pretty dramatic cost reductions while having comparable performance. So frugal GPT with this combination of techniques achieves uh, performance comparable to GPT-4, but if GPT-4 costs free, $33 for this particular task, Frugal GPT could do it as well for $6.5. So pretty big deal. Uh, at a high level, there is kind of a mix of things here where it does improve the prompt. It has this LLM cascade where they use cheaper LLMs first and then use the expensive GPT-4 if it seems to be needed. And yeah, it's very effective and again, very practical. I think we could definitely see this showing up in the near future in products and companies. On to our policy and safety section. First off, we've got a little note from Stability AI CEO, 
Ahmad Mostak. He says that AI might control humanity in the worst case scenario, but will probably just find this boring. To take a quotation from him that he said to a British broadcaster, if you have a more capable thing than you, what kind? what is democracy in that kind of environment? This is a known unknown because we can't conceive of something more capable than us, but we all know people more capable than us. So his his personal belief is that it will be a little bit like the movie Her with Scarlett Johansson and Joaquin Phoenix, that humans are a little bit boring and it'll be like, goodbye, and you're kind of boring. This is, this is a direct quote from him. Um, it's interesting to note that he did sign the open letter on a six-month moratorium on... Uh, on AI capability development, and he apparently signed it due to uncertainty rather than having a clear threat model. Yeah, I I think my thoughts about this right away are that I tend to agree. I think in my mind, I would find it hard, even if these are kind of alien intelligences and we cannot really predict. To me, it doesn't seem like there would be much of a reason for them to spontaneously start doing dangerous things to hurt people. I think misuse is much more likely or yeah, someone just allowing the AI to do things, bad things. And ironically, the more we consider AI a threat and try to shut it down, the more likely AI agents are to actually find humans hostile. But uh, another addition to the set of voices expressing opinions on this. And actually, let's just go ahead and jump on to the next story, which is Hinton issues another AI warning, world needs to find a way to control AI. So in this case, uh, there is a bit more detail where Jeffrey Hinton, who we mentioned a bunch, is a very influential figure. You can listen to our podcast last week about how he left Google. He has stated that his concern is kind of power-seeking and called out realignment problems specifically, which many researchers still aren't quite on board with. So just as a quote here, uh, he said, there's no use waiting for VAI to outsmart us. We must control it as it develops. We also have to understand how to contain it, how to avoid its negative consequences. The best thing to do now is, according to him, put as much effort into developing this technology as we are into making sure it's safe. How can the how can that be accomplished in a capitalist system? I don't know. So yeah, Jeffrey Hinton is really all on board with AI safety uh, perspectives. We saw a lot of activity in this space recently. So to what you said about how this can be accomplished in a capitalist system, of course, some would say we need regulation, but then we are used to regulating when we know what the problem will be. Um, and while we do need to be more proactive, sometimes this can come out in sorts of laws that might be a little bit troubling. Again, you know, we, we see this with the EU. At the same time, we saw Sam Altman testifying to Congress very recently. A lot of people do kind of worry about whether Sam Altman's suggestions for Congress are really good faith as opposed to regulatory capture, something we, we kind of have to watch. Um, but it's also interesting to note that Geoff Hinton's AI timelines look pretty close. He says it will take AI between five and 20 years to surpass human intelligence. I'm, I'm inclined to be a little bit skeptical, especially given that 
I don't know how many years ago it was that Geoff Hinton kept repeating that AI would someday put radiologists out of jobs. And right now, I think we're still not anywhere near that happening. So it does seem like he's want to put these timelines a little bit a little bit closer than they might be in reality. I, I seem to recall that maybe it was more of a one-off comment, to be fair. But yeah, you can't really predict this stuff. If I had to guess, uh, my prediction would be between 5 and 50 years to surpass human intelligence. We just really don't know. It could be that they're reaching a plateau or it could be that what we have now is is going to just keep developing and, and will just work. Hard to say. I'm curious, Daniel, uh, between me and Jeremy, the usual co-host, he is definitely the safety hawk who is more concerned about AI and existential risk and the sort of very, uh, let's say, not far off necessarily, but very significant worries that aren't necessarily about misinformation or things like that. Where do you stand on the safety spectrum? Uh, it's... Um... Honestly, I find myself in a place where I, I think I'm somewhere in the middle. Like, I do feel like there are some strong arguments on the side of people who are more worried about safety. But at the same time, like, I don't know if I, I definitely don't go complete doomerist. So one thing that um, Scott Aronson, the noted quantum physicist I spoke to him recently said about this was, and I like the way he put it. Um, part of why he's not such a doomerist and why he isn't into the idea that necessarily AI systems um, that become super intelligent are going to just kind of perversely optimize utility functions is that he's not a big fan of this thing that a lot of alignment people believe called the orthogonality thesis, which basically says that your level of intelligence and then your goals can be completely decorrelated. So that would justify the existence of something like your proverbial paperclip maximizer, right? A super intelligence that's entire goal is just to create more paperclips. If you think that intelligence and your actual goals are in any way correlated, then I think that idea becomes immediately absurd. So it's, um, I guess, I guess something that I'm thinking a lot right now is how some of these underlying justifications that we come up with and sort of the, the nature of and relationship between um, the idea of intelligence. I mean, first of all, what that means in the first place, but then once we've nailed down a definition and thought about it, um, how that interacts with things like goals and behavior in the world, um, what that sort of implies, because I feel like there's a lot of kind of basic substrate style um, assumptions or, or ideas that we kind of package up in some of these debates. I also tend to think I totally agree with that. And I think there are other sort of missing components in some of these arguments where, for instance, if in five years we did have strong AGI and let's say there was a paperclip maximizer that just wanted to turn everything into paperclips, well, it wouldn't be able to do that, right? You cannot hack everything. You, cannot, you won't have an army of robots, presumably, to build factories are not automated to the extent that you can just access it as software and do whatever you want. So it, it just wouldn't be possible, even if you had some super intelligent AI, unless it could manifest physical objects in the real world, it's not going to kill us all. So I, I'm, I'm also in the middle, but I have some strong reasons where I dislike, let's say, concerns about the next five years. 
but let's not get into it. That's a whole big topic. So we're going to jump uh, up ahead. And we are still talking about AGI safety. This is a survey of expert opinions. Uh, it's called Towards Best Practices in AGI Safety and Governance. And it's pretty uh, detailed. So they survey 92 leading experts from AGI labs, academia, and civil society with 51 responses. So not a huge sample size, but these are some of the very notable uh, people about in this field. And they did ask 50 statements uh, about what AGI labs should do with regards to AGI safety and governance. The responders could uh, pick from strongly disagree to strongly agree. And there was quite a bit of agreement ultimately uh, so 98% of respondents somewhat strongly agree that AGI labs should conduct pre-deployment risk assessments, uh, dangerous capabilities evaluations, third-party model audits, safety restrictions on model usage, and red teaming, which is a way to find exploits via basically friendly hacking. Some things were uh, more contentious, like requiring to notify other labs when you uh, create a new model, avoiding capability jumps, uh, enterprise risk management, whatever that means, notifying a state actor. But even then, there was quite a bit of agreement. And for, let's say, more than half of these proposals, uh, there was a lot of agreement. So it seems like there's a lot of good ideas for policymakers to follow here. I also think it's worth noting that there was a bit of a sector distribution that was uh, missing, or not missing, but uh, imbalanced. So 44% of these responders were from AGI labs, 23 were from academia, and 23 were from civil society. People working in AGI labs typically are more concerned about safety uh, in general, and I think the agreement that these measures are needed. And actually, none of them had a negative score. The lowest agreement was closest to neither agree or disagree, but all of them got a positive score that these things are needed. So it seems like the people surveyed are those that are particularly concerned about safety and governance measures. And it is a pretty small sample size. So limited conclusion, but if nothing else, this shows that for this set of 50 possible approaches, generally experts, whatever that is, uh, think that a lot of things are needed and are reasonable and this could inform what these companies do and also what policymakers pursue. First off in our quick coverage for this section, there's been a lot of discourse on national sort of strategies and competition around AI. And one thing that's often brought up is the idea of kind of a, a national champion. So something in industry where uh, that player is really big for the country, but then also sort of government associated or flagship research institutes. And 
We're well aware that DeepMind, Google's famous AI research lab, is based in the UK, but it looks like their flagship institute for artificial intelligence, which is called the Alan Turing Institute, has been at best irrelevant to the development of modern AI in the country. Um, so apparently, along with the AI Council, which advises the government on AI, this institute has been completely blindsided by recent, recent breakthroughs in AI based on LLMs. Um, their annual reports for the last four years do not refer to LLMs at all. And there is no record of its website or director mentioning them until a few months ago. Um, instead, apparently, their, their most popular blog post in 2022 was titled Non-Fungible Tokens, Can We Predict the Price They'll Sell For? So uh, maybe maybe they turned into a little bit of, of crypto shills as well. So we'll, we'll have to watch what kind of happens with them. This is pretty crazy. I mean, this large language models by 2019, there's a reason OpenAI started really focusing on them. It wasn't even at that point surprising uh, that they are very promising. So to just not mention them, especially after GPT-3, is surprising. And I think the evaluation in the title by this uh, blog post from a Substack is uh, seemingly correct. And then earlier, we mentioned AI voice scams. And now we have a report that say that 77% of victims lose money and also covers how common it is and how to protect yourself. This is a report from McAfee on these AI voice scams where you have an AI create someone's voice, mimic someone's voice. When you call someone else, and for instance, you can pretend that they are in a hostage situation and you need to pay money to these criminals to make them safe. And this isn't new. Imposter scams have been around for a long time, but with AI, it's much harder to not fall for them because if you hear someone's voice that is close to you, you might assume that uh, it is uh, legitimate. And the numbers here are quite surprising. It uh, seems that according to this, 25% of people surveyed have apparently either experienced an AI scam or know someone who did, which is really high. And this research shows that 77% of AI voice scams victims lose money. Wow. And not an insignificant amount of money. Apparently, more than one-third lost over $1,000. 7% were duped out of between $5,000 and $15,000. Actually, in the U.S., 11% lost between $5,000 and $15,000. So these are um, pretty, pretty non-negligible effects here. It's a pretty worrying trend. Yeah, these numbers are crazy. I would not have expected it to be anywhere near this high, given convincing uh, AI voice cloning is quite new. It may be that they really are targeting the same demographics that are more susceptible to it, that may not understand these things. And as a result, there is such a high um, share of people who lose money through it. And it just doubles down on what we've already said, that we will have to adapt and be able to not fall for these sorts of things. Our next story is actually a pretty specific case of this kind of thing going on. So uh, police near Seattle have issued a warning about AI phone scammers impersonating family members. Kuro7 reported that a family in Tacoma, Washington last week encountered a phone scammer 
that they believe to be their 16-year-old daughter. Um, this caller informed them of her involvement in a serious car accident, and the news station said that the scammer using voice calling software demanded at least $10,000, kind of in the, the upper range of what we were talking about earlier for their daughter's safe return. And the incident involved uh, local law enforcement and pushed the county sheriff's department to issue a warning about the rise of phone scams using voice cloning software. Um, specifically, the post from Pierce County said that artificial intelligence is no longer a far-fetched idea out of a sci-fi movie. We're living with it here and now. This article also covered, uh, covered how the FTC noted that consumers should create plans with their family members to avoid falling victim to these sorts of scams. As we mentioned earlier, a uh, listener also mentioned this kind of idea. So some of these plans could involve verifying their loved one's situation using a known phone number, try to get in contact with another family member or close friend, and definitely watch out for requests to hide money trails like wiring money or crypto or gift card, which is generally true of any scam. So yeah, this is the world we live in and we need to be careful. Speaking of that, our next article is about how to spot AI-generated text. It's a pretty lengthy overview of this topic from the MIT Techno uh, Technology Review. To sum it up, this article kind of winds up saying there's not much we can do about it. Uh, if you're reading, we don't have great software solutions for now. OpenAI is working on watermarking, being able to verify with software that something was generated with GPT. That's not necessarily out there yet. Um, you can actually uh, kind of tell if something was ChatGPT if it's written very well in a very formal way. And I've seen, I've noticed people on Reddit and elsewhere be like, it has a certain style by default and you can notice it. So if there's a typo in in some writing, it's probably not ChatGPT actually, it's, it's uh, human written. And it covers also a study that shows that with practice, you get better at it. Although if it's totally new, then it's impossible to tell them apart. So it's it's a good overview of the topic. Indeed. Um, it does seem like the, the text domain, it's going to take a while for us. I don't know. It, it does seem like the conclusion that this is basically impossible is really the um, the only serious conclusion here. Moving on to the art and fun stuff section, we'll start off with some news about an ongoing writer's strike in which the use of AI is a major sticking point. So to give some context, the Writers Guild of America, which is a labor union representing writers who primarily work in film and television, began a work strike this month after reaching an impasse in negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers that represents the US entertainment industry. Part of this disagreement revolves around a WGA proposal to ban the industry from using AI systems, such as ChatGPT, to generate story ideas or scripts for films and shows. Um, the union wants to ensure that such technologies do not undermine writers' compensation and writing credits. Basically, the fear, um, according to Virginia Duelgast at Cornell University, is that AI systems will be used to produce first drafts of shows, and then a small number of writers would work off these scripts. 
And beyond the AI issue, this is also related to, in general, kind of the trends of people watching more on streaming services than on TV. Nowadays, apparently writing jobs are based on shorter seasons with fewer episodes, so you have less kind of um, consistent income necessarily. So this is targeting a pretty broad set of ongoing trends. It isn't just about AI, but AI is definitely part of it, where it actually really matters who gets the writing credit. And we'll cover that more in our listener response uh, or response to listener section right after the rest of these stories. Now on to music. We have China has its Drake GPT moment as AI singer goes viral. So Mando Pop singer Stephanie Sun has gone viral, uh, which is on Billy Billy, China's largest user-generated video streaming site. The arrival of interest in this artist actually wasn't due to new music. She hasn't released a new album since 2017. But there has been a trend of generating these AI songs of hers now of this very popular singer who hasn't released much in a couple of years. We've seen this in the US and covered this already with many uh, examples such as Drag GPT and other songs going viral here. And yeah, now it, it's happening in China and the most popular uh, AI songs have generated uh, more than 1 million views. It's um, so we also saw some response from Douyin, which was the quickest to address the legal implications of this explosion. Um, they published a guideline on AI-generated content, basically um, following China's new synthetic technology regulations, saying content owners should mark AI-generated content with distinguishing labels, and that they're responsible for the consequences of such content. Um, if any content infringes on copyrights, that's prohibited and subject to severe punishment once detected by the platform. So not not really an outright ban going on here. I'm also kind of curious to see how Chinese artists will respond. I think in the United States, for example, um, and in, in our neck of the woods, we saw Grimes, for example, who was kind of like, you can go ahead and use my voice for your AI-generated stuff. We'll just like split the uh, the royalties 50-50. And it seems like a couple of different artists are interested in this sort of thing. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that looks internationally as well. I agree. The comparison of largely the same thing happening in the US and China, I'm sure they will play out somewhat differently. Let's move on to something going on in Korea. So K-pop powerhouse Hybe, uh, which if you're into the music group BTS, you might know them as the music label behind them, um, unveiled its first AI project called Midnat, which sings a song in multiple languages. It switches between female and male voices using generative voice technology. Um, Midnat is an alter ego of a ballad singer named Lee Hyun. Uh, it dropped a new digital single named Masquerade in six languages, Korean, English, Japanese, Chinese, Spanish, and Vietnamese. It teamed up with Hybe IM, um, so the music label Big Hit Music teamed up with Hybe IM, its interactive media arm, to adopt AI startup Supertone's voice synthetic tools for the project. It acquired Supertone for four forty-five billion won, which equates to thirty-six point five million dollars back in January. 
It's interesting to see in this case, the music industry really getting into AI in a big way. Here, Spotify and other companies in the US have sort of been unhappy with AI-generated songs, with mimicking things like Drake, and artists have been as well. In K-pop, it's been pretty regular to release a song in Japanese and Chinese and Korean and so on for these very big groups. So it makes a lot of sense that they're investing in this. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, quite a move on their part and shows they are ready to make a lot of money with AI, unlike some other uh, companies in the US. And let's cover some video, some deepfakes, which we haven't been talking about too much. The story here is that Trump has shared fake video of Anderson Cooper reacting to CNN Town Hall. So as if you're in the US, you might know that uh, former President Trump was in a CNN sort of town hall uh, recently and said a bunch of things. It was quite controversial, lots of reactions. And now he shared a doctored video clip, which depicts a CNN broadcast where the very famous anchor Anderson Cooper says that was President Donald J. Trump ripping us a new A something here on CNN's live presidential down hall. Thank you for watching. Have a good night. So quite silly, you know, not serious, but it's interesting to see the adoption of uh, adoption of the synthetic media. President Trump has also shared uh, AI-generated imagery in the past on this true social platform. It'll be interesting to see what this all does to politics. I think that the kind of media environment we live in right now, well, the social media environment where we're sort of in our silos, it can be hard to suss out information. Um, we, we've kind of seen like claims going in different directions. So for example, the um, AI generated images of Trump running away from police. I think that apparently, I mean, most people who looked at those images weren't really fooled by them. They were like, oh, this is, you know, funny, interesting. Um, I'm sure that there probably were people out there who were fooled, but it sounds like the majority weren't. And it apparently, according to a lot of studies, people are pretty good at like sussing out what is an AI generated image versus what is not. Um, that being said, I, I am kind of curious, like fake videos are technically going to be harder to generate. So I would expect, at least intuitively, that it's going to take longer for these things to be super convincing. But at the same time, when you're in a social media environment where people are kind of in their separate circles, if you really want to be convinced by a piece of media, I suspect you're probably going to be convinced. So I, I am just curious to see what this is going to look like going forward. We should note also that, you know, especially with Trump, he, like his uh fans believe that still believe that the election uh was stolen from him that there was some sort of conspiracy a conspiracy theory that maybe a huge number of people believe and i could easily see among this let's say conspiracy theory susceptible crowd 
synthetic media being a tool to prolong and sort of build upon conspiracy theories in a big way. So to me, that would be the biggest concern. Final story, not even New York Times bestsellers are safe from AI cover art. A prominent fantasy novel named House of Earth and Blood by Sarah J. Moss features a cover that was apparently generated with AI. And this has sparked complaints from both artists and book enthusiasts. Um, Earlier this month, readers noted that the back of the UK edition of this book credits Adobe Stock, which has notably welcomed AI onto its platform for the illustration of a wolf on its cover. That illustration matches an image created by a user named Aperture Vintage and is marked as AI generated on Adobe's site. The move has led to some criticism, both of the author Moss and of Bloomsbury Publishing, which is one of the world's leading independent publishing houses. Notably, Adobe Stock, unlike Midjourney and other offerings, is meant to be a commercial tool. So the training data avoids copyrighted material. It must be clearly labeled as AI generated, and contributors must review the terms of any generative AI tools they use to create the images to ensure they have the rights. So this is very much like getting uh, normal images from Adobe stock, but this was AI generated, which was known because it was labeled as such. But yeah, there's been a lot of controversy, which we've discussed from various artists and creative fields with regards to any adoption of AI really. And I suppose it's not surprising that this move of including AI art on the book uh, was controversial. Although the offer, by the way, uh, it's not clear if there was involvement in the choice or it was just a publisher. But uh, yeah, add add to the debate, which is ongoing and is not going to end anytime soon. Okay, and let us wrap up in our final section, which is our response to listeners comments and questions. So in this case, we mentioned that we got a very informative email from someone who is part of a Writers Guild that really informed uh, us with regards to these ongoing stories and the going uh, strike. So let me just read the email because it really explains things very well, starting with As a currently striking member of the Writers Guild, I wanted to respond to your section about our labor dispute on the last show. As context, the fuller substance of negotiations can in some ways all boil down to the studios and the streamer services desire to turn writing into gig work and employ the fewest amount of writers for the shortest amount of time. Given that there is already an existential crisis, you can understand why the prospects of studios attempting to replace us with large language uh, generated scripts is terrifying. Of course, they're going to try it. I have no doubt that some cadre of creative execs are binging YouTube tutorials on prompting as we speak. And they say that we were right to point out that writers will also want to use these tools. So... They're not saying, you know, exclude any use of AI from being used in writing. What, according to this emailer, the demands are is that they don't want 
for uh, the studios to be able to credit writing to a script that came from a large language models or rewrite material that we give uh, that the writers give to the studios with a large language model. And let me just read a bit more because I think the next section really hits home why all this is so important. So when you see credits on the screen, like written by, created by, story editor, those are all guild sanctioned credits. So the studios are not allowed to use them if they didn't hire guild writers. So you can't say written by, created by, etc. And when it comes to things like awards eligibility, those credits matter. And many times a production will be required to be a union production across the board. So if a studio wants to use a large language model script, that might be their desire, but the union is trying to make it so they do not do that on a production that is also using union members. Again, there's an emphasis on using it as a tool being fined, but um, it's just not good if they can be used, these AI tools could take away from the credit and sort of the professional capacity of writers in the process. So I was very informed by that. That's quite interesting. It is uh, good to hear that, as we noted last week, at least some writers do see the usefulness of these tools, and it's much more about the structure of the industry and what it means for crediting and financial benefits. I don't know how much you looked into all this stuff, uh, Daniel. Uh, I wonder if you've heard any of this stuff before. I can say that I followed this particular strike as much, but personally, I, I do feel pretty sympathetic with the writers here. Um, and I mean, they do state writers are not Luddites, like they don't want to turn back time or turn their backs on technology. And given the environment we're in, I do, I do worry a lot about some of these things kind of evaporating. I think that, um, I mean, much ink has been spilt on this point already, but a world where writers disappear and everything becomes AI generated is a world that's going to kind of feed on itself in which the language that we all consume and produce looks the same. And that's not the type of world I want to see going forward. So again, you know, this is like a, a pretty specific instance. Um, but a lot of the discourse I see does kind of pretend more to come, more debates in this realm. I just hope that we we land in the right place. Here also, uh, this email linked to a nice Twitter thread that included additional information, uh, including the statement that writers are not Luddites. It also says that we don't want to preempt technology, or rather, um, there's a quote here of a studio exec uh, in response to the WGA's proposal to regulate the use of AI, the studios say, we don't want to preempt technology that we might be able to take advantage of. So essentially, uh, the studios are dismissing and not really negotiating. And it's also important to note that this particular fight by union is sort of precedent setting. Uh, we've often said how every creative industry will be shaped here. And you can think of how actors and directors and producers and editors will all similarly have to sort of negotiate how they are given credit and how AI is kind of 
part of a process and how their compensation is affected. So yeah, this is an even bigger deal than I realized. And it's not a matter of offers thinking that it's wrong to use AI to write. It's more about the industry structure and sort of the capitalist side of it. Um, so it's worth paying attention to because this really will probably have a lot of downstream effects. And I guess it's worth saying the podcast is on the side of the union uh, for the record. And with that, we are done. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Last Week in AI. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweek.ai. Thank you, Daniel, for being a guest host. Uh, I will be curious to see what people think. I think this was it's fun to have a slightly different dynamic and perhaps you can be a guest host again in the future. This was lovely. Thanks. And last note, as usual, we'd like to ask you to share, to leave reviews, and to email us your thoughts over at contact at lastweekin.ai. We really do love uh, seeing all the feedback and the comments, so that's been very cool. That's it. Be sure to tune in next week.